This is Reset. I'm Marina Samudio. In her new book, Bed Mexicans, Race, Empire, and Revolution in the Borderlands, historian Kelly Lyle Hernandez tells a dramatic story of the Mangonistas, the rebels who coronated the 1910 Mexican Revolution from the United States, as well as some of the impacts it had on American policing, U.S. foreign policy, and the violence Mexicans faced in the Southwest. In many ways, the revolution was also a demographic shift. It started the process that led Latinos to becoming the largest non-white population in the U.S. today. Lyle Hernandez digs into the archives to show how Mexican and American history can't be separated. Joining us to discuss her book is UCLA historian and 2019 MacArthur genius Kelly Lyle Hernandez. Welcome to Reset. Thank you for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. So let's start here. Why did you want to write a book about a revolution that took place over a hundred years ago? Well, what I wanted to write a book about was about the group of Mexican migrants, many of whom would have been understood as being undocumented, how they built a social movement that ousted a tyrant from power and changed the history of both the United States and Mexico. And I wanted to tell it the moment that Um, We had an autocrat here in the United States, Donald Trump, who declared Mexican migrants to be so-called bad hombres. And I knew that the dictator in power in Mexico that the Magonistas sought to remove from power had disparaged them as so-called bad Mexicans or malos mexicanos. And this term bad Mexican was also used against Mexican migrants um, to incite high levels of violence against them. And so I wanted to talk about that history that President Trump was tapping into and bring it to the fore. The rebel stories are so rich and nuanced. Uh, Who are the Mangonistas and the Partido Liberal Mexicano, or PLM? So there was a a journalist named Ricardo Flores Magón who was working in Mexico City in the early 20th century, around 1900-1901. And he and his brother and a couple of friends published this newspaper called Regeneración. And on the pages of Regeneración, they challenged the dictator in Mexico, um, a military general called Porfirio Diaz. They named him a a tyrant, an autocrat, a a dictator. Um, And they talked about the ways in which Porfirio Diaz had invited foreign investors into Mexico to buy up land and use up labor, all to the detriment of Mexico's um, indigenous and rural communities. Porfirio Diaz, who is a dictator, attempts to suppress them, to stop them from writing about his dictatorship and his relationship with foreign investors. He has them arrested multiple times in Mexico City, imprisoned, smashes up their printing presses, and even has a judge issue a gag order against Ricardo Flores Magón and his friends who are often called um, Magonistas, or the followers of Ricardo Flores Magón. So in 1904, Ricardo Flores Magón and his friends flee Mexico, and they come to the United States with the intention of rebuilding their social movement and hopefully inciting a revolution against Porfirio Diaz back in Mexico. You write about a raid in the northern Mexican city of Jimenez in 1906. What's the significance of that, and what does it say about U.S. investment in Mexico? Yes, So once Ricardo Flores Magón and his friends arrive in the United States in 1904, they do three things. They relaunch their rebel newspaper, Renacion. 
They also establish a political party, and they establish an army. And it really is an army of the dispossessed that Mexican migrants um, who had been working in the borderlands trying to scratch out a living, and as they're confronting Juan Crow wages and living conditions in the United States, the first raid is in September of 1906 that the PLM Army um, leaves Del Rio, Texas, to raid the small town of Jimenez, Mexico. This raid is not very large, but it sends trembles across the United States, um, government and um, large investors. Why? Porfirio Diaz had invited foreign investors into Mexico and effectively given away nearly a quarter of the Mexican land base to foreign investors and allowed them to come to dominate key Mexican industries. And he protected those investments in Mexico. So the idea that the PLM army could raid Jimenez, Mexico, and challenge the Diaz regime, which had invested so much in courting U.S. investors and protecting them, this sent shockwaves across the United States government. you got to understand by the um, turn of the 20th century, 50% of all U.S. foreign investments were in Mexico, and they wanted to see those investments protected. And at least early on, they saw Porfirio Diaz as a protector of U.S. investments in Mexico. So you mentioned a term that I want to make sure that we get to uh, for our audience sake. You said Juan Crow. Can you describe what that is? Sure. So as foreign investors are moving into Mexico, buying up land, dispossessing millions of people, Mexicans begin to migrate in search of work first in Mexico, and then they cross the U.S.-Mexico border. And when they arrive in the United States, they run head first into a web of white supremacy. This meant racialized segregation in neighborhoods, in schools, at work, occupational segregation. It meant that the emerging U.S. immigration enforcement regime um, was going to turn against Mexicans and target them in particular. And it also meant very high levels of racial violence. More than 500 Mexicans and Mexican-Americans were lynched in the United States between the 1870s and the 1920s in a campaign um, to suppress Mexicanos um, and political and social power in the United States. And so this system of Juan Crow is a comprehensive system of uh, racial subordination that's akin to Jim Crow and its impacts upon black folks across the United States. Parts of the book felt like a spy novel. Can you tell us about Thomas Furlong and how he tracked the rebels? Yes. So the Magonisa story very much feels like a spy novel. It's chock full of tyrants and rebels and assassins and spies and secret codes and armed battles. And the Mexican government, in about 1906, after this Jimenez raid, hires a detective um, here in the United States named Thomas Furlong. And when he gets this offer from the Mexican government to so-called run down the revolutionists to stop them from starting an uprising that neither the Mexican government or the U.S. government could control, he throws all of his might at um, searching for Ricardo Flores Magón and the leaders of this social movement, um, looking for the Magonistas. And so he chases them across the United States, into Canada, into Mexico, and they begin to live on the run. And one of the ways that they stay in 
communication with one another. They send letters to each other. And one of the most significant contributions of Thomas Furlong to this cross-border counterinsurgency campaign that's mounting between the U.S. and Mexican governments is that he somehow is able to access or plant spies um, in, the US, in U.S. post offices across the country. And his spies pulled the Magonistas mail out of post boxes, postal boxes, open up the mail, copy down the letters, and then send them on their way. And he uses those letters and those addresses to hunt down the Magonistas and arrest them across the country. And the U.S. Postal Service aided him in this effort. This is Reset. I'm Marina Samudio. We're talking with historian Kelly Lyle Hernandez about her new book, Bad Mexicans, which chronicles the Mexican Revolution and its intersection with American imperialism. How did the women keep the revolution alive when Ricardo Flores Magón and other key rebels were jailed in, in Los Angeles and other cities? That's a great question. The women of the movement in particular play crucial roles in holding the movement together and growing it. So Ricardo's life partner, a woman named Maria Bruce de Talavera, plays one of those key roles. And what she does is she's able to smuggle letters to and from Ricardo Flores Magón in solitary confinement in the L.A. County Jail. She does that by showing up at the jail and saying that she's doing basically her womanly duty of picking up his dirty clothes and delivering him clean clothes. Well, inside those clean clothes that she was delivering, she had written and rolled up small little bit of paper that had rebel correspondence um, from PLM members, from herself and others. Ricardo and Solitary would open up those notes, read them, and then write back on those small sheets of paper, roll them up, and sew them into the seams of his dirties. In this way, Maria kept the movement um, together while Ricardo Flores Magón was in, in jail here in Los Angeles. You start the book with a brutal lynching of 20-year-old Antonio Rodriguez, a Mexican man who was accused of killing a white woman. Why did you start there? That's a good question. I start there for several reasons. One, um, scholars have often acknowledged the lynching of Antonio Rodriguez in early November of 1910 as one of the, the final inciting events that leads to the outbreak of the Mexican Revolution because his, his killing, he's, he's burned at the stake um, in the small town of Rock Springs, Texas. His murder incites riots across Mexico because people are arguing that if Porfirio Diaz can't keep Mexicans safe from U.S. investors in Mexico, or when Mexicans are forced to cross the border into the United States, and what's the point? of the Porfirio Diaz government if you can't keep Mexicans safe. That's one of the reasons to talk about um, Antonio Rodriguez, because it helps us to see the ways in which the Mexican Revolution is so intertwined with politics um, in and from the United States. You end the book in 1915 with El Plan to San Diego and one of the largest and deadliest massacres of, of Mexicans. Tell us what happened, and, and why isn't this part of U.S. history? Amid the Mexican Revolution, which rages from 1910 to 1917, in the middle of that revolution, a group of Mexicans look north, and they figure, well, if we've been able to remove Porfirio Diaz from power and begin to assert our, our demands 
for Mexico's dispossessed um, here. What if we turn north and we follow that and we fight for protection of Mexican and other people's lives north of the border as well? And so July 4th of 1915, a small group of mounted Mexican riders enter the United States, and they're determined to kill every white male over the age of 16 and to liberate land to give to very particular communities. The first set of lands that they liberate, they intend to give to African Americans as a sanctuary from white supremacy. The second set of lands that they liberate, they intend to give to their indigenous communities as a sanctuary from white settler occupation. And then moving forward, giving land to Asian and um, Asian folks and to Mexicans as sanctuary from all the violences that they had experienced at the hands of white supremacy in the United States and around the world. Um, the blowback to this is extraordinary. The U.S. Department of War is sent into South Texas. Thousands of white men are deputized to crush this rebellion. And historians say that anywhere between 300 and potentially as high as, as 5,000 Mexicans and Mexican-Americans were murdered in retaliation for Plan de San Diego. And so they're an example of um, how much we lost and we lose. We cannot understand about race and power and violence in U.S. history unless we begin to focus new attention and new light on the Mexican-American experience. That's historian Kelly Lyle Hernandez. Her book is called Bad Mexicans, Race, Empire, and Revolution in the Borderlands. The book was released in May. Get your copy today from your favorite bookstore. Thank you so much for joining us today. That's it for this special Labor Day edition of Reset. A big thanks to Cassie Walker-Burke, Taylor Faye-Nazone, Adora Namigade, Araceli Gomez-Aldana, Valerie Tony Parker, and Maria Inez Zamudio for their great interviews for the show today. And thanks to my EP, Dan Tucker, who you got to hear from for once over the last two hours. Thank you, Sasha. Tomorrow on the show, many more topics coming at you. I'll talk with scholar Andrea Ritchie, author of the new book, No More Police. She argues that U.S. policing as we know it needs more than just reform. It needs to be abolished altogether. Plus, we talk about contraceptive care and the impact a planned Chicago casino could have on the riverfront. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day. We'll meet again tomorrow. Tomorrow.